On observing social civility, I get to yearning for simplicity, to trade the travails of people and money for an island full of books, where stories drip like honey and muses bathe in brooks. Wouldn't that be better, just the company of myths? Wouldn't that be better? Thank you for your weekly poem. I like it a lot. Thank you. It feels personal. Yeah, it is personal. Um, I think this, this whole semester actually is going to be quite personal because mm-hmm. storytelling, inherently, we are either the teller or the tellee. Mm-hmm. So we all, we're, we're kind of talking about our experiences whereas maybe with and our observations, whereas maybe mm-hmm. with education and degrowth before it, we were talking a little bit more structural. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the previous semesters, this semester is a little different because we didn't release a zine. However, we have started sharing field notes. So if you would like to engage with us in these field notes, you can sign up in the Google form in the description. We'd love to have you in that little community that's forming. Thank you for listening to that plug. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done. Um, So we have three questions to talk about today. We're going to start with, I think, the one that's been on our mind most when we came up with the whole semester of storytelling, which is, mm-hmm. do we consume too many stories today? A very Solacene question, I, I have it to is. say. <laughs> and where did you start trying to answer this big, big topic? Well, I just answered it basically yes or no. And I think we... Short podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how, how you have to start answering a question, yes yeah. or no, or maybe. Yeah. And my answer obviously was maybe, because I suppose we consume too many stories But I think if they were replaced with all meaningful, intentional stories, they wouldn't be too many. Because say we spend three hours every day in a combination of reading, watching movies or TV, and being on TikTok. Three hours a day of consuming stories I don't think is too much. Hmm. But the way that we consume them, so you watch 20 minutes of Seinfeld, you watch about 100 TikToks in an hour, you watch a random movie that you pull up on Netflix, unintentional but it's feeding your brain a lot of inputs that it then has to filter through and try and fit into these schemas that you've already established and i think that's not good so i think we consume too many of the wrong type of stories okay yeah why do you say it's too many because or you just think any is too many with some types of stories i think any is too many with some types Because it overwhelms your brain. Like your Hmm. brain tries to be as efficient as possible by like making decisions and trying to, as I said, like fit things into pre-existing boxes. But when it's bombarded with, I'm going to use the TikTok example because that's the best. Like you probably watch 115 second videos if you spend an hour on TikTok. And that's a lot of input that your brain has to try and categorize. So it exhausts you. And often it just makes you kind of question everything every few seconds. So I don't think that's good for the brain. The six-second storytelling, the vine, yeah. the vine genre. I kind of had a similar observation, which is that in terms of because the question is is really about the uniqueness of the modern time. It's like, do we consume too many stories today since mm-hmm. the invention of everything, like mm-hmm. circa twenty years ago or whatever? Yeah. Um, and it's like there was this invention of things. Well, let's say circa 100 years ago, with just mass media, but really accelerated by the internet, things between deliberately told stories, um, as in art for the most mm-hmm. part, or campfire stories, you know, tales, very deliberate, and life, 
there's mm. there's all these other spaces in between right now that I think we don't really categorize very well, and that's why we have this awful catch-all term of content, which mm -hmm. best summarizes the, the hour of TikTok that you were talking about. Yeah, but also the like 6,000 to 10,000 ads that we see per day Right. also impacts us, because they're all a narrative. They might be a billboard, they might be a pop-up ad on the side, but it's telling a story. That's a very good point. Sports, I was thinking, is another one, mm -hmm. because there's the, the narrative of the sport game, which is almost like a... A, a good versus evil depending on you know your side or whether you you have an active stake like that but it's one side trying to beat the other or one person trying to beat the other but there's also um for a lot of people who are fans i consider myself one of them there's a the whole narrative outside of the game which is almost more consuming than mm. what actually happens on the field yeah or on where the court. is Dion going what's right. pep up to <laughs> yeah et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's all these various figures like with like with all of kind of wider culture pop culture that, be, that become characters in our minds it's mm -hmm. very similar to watching a soap opera i often hear um people say that the nba is like the soap opera for men or football is like the soap <laughs> opera for men and I, I think it's yeah it's very similar um, and that's the type of story that i think we quote unquote consume without realizing it mm -hmm. we just think well i'm just reading the news because yeah. there's been this difference between the news and whatever this is itself yeah. kind of an industry that's that's sold to us mm -hmm. except instead of watching it um, as a movie or reading it in a novel, you're reading tweets from a journalist. Yeah. I mean, a lot of politics is like this storytelling to people as well, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a narrative that we get. It's not just a narrative, but it is a narrative that we kind of get swept up in. Yeah. I thought another answer to the question of do we consume too many stories is, I guess, yeah, there's a certain type of story that I think we consume too much of that's unintentional. It's just peripheral, perhaps. Mm, yeah. You think, no, I'm a fan of this sport, so I have to know what's going on or I am a voter so I have to know what's going on with right. all these different stories being told but I think yeah watching and consuming all that stuff is so much different than making the choice to spend ten dollars on a book or the choice to commit two hours of your life to a movie even mm. so with that's why I kind of felt like movies are perhaps a good example of something that I don't think we consume too much of as long as you're being intentional with them whereas with the tv shows or the yeah the snippy content you mean because it's more bite-sized yeah okay yeah i can see that because i like and, and another kind of uh comparison is sometimes i mean we stream a lot of movies but sometimes mm -hmm. it's like you have finished one but instead of finishing it you start another one halfway mm -hmm. and then before you know it, you have like seven or eight movies that you are yeah. halfway through and that always makes me feel a little bit chaotic yeah. i'll start knocking off the list but when you put it that way it's the same as if you are currently watching like 19 tv shows or mm -hmm currently following 11 different influencers who yeah. each week post a bit of their life which to you is just a story mm -hmm. yeah and sometimes I, it's literally called a story on Instagram, yes right? it is i happened upon a book this weekend in preparation for this episode that for those of you who remember my rant about audiobooks i listened to it in an audiobook format <laughs> to try and bring myself around to it and i was like okay this is this is working but I listened to this book called The Impact of Identity, and it's for a later question, but she used the example, the author, of her son, who is our age, he's like a teenager, young adult, and she said, when I was a kid, you'd have 10 hit songs, and yeah. you'd listen to 10 hit songs, it'd be awesome, yeah. but when he's listening to music, he's scrolling through, he's changing every, like halfway through every song, because there's just too many hits, right. and there's just too much good stuff. 
And it's like, we believe that's not a bad thing. We were like, oh, there's so much good stuff. This is awesome. This is the future. This is progress of humanity. But you do need to be intentional about how much good stuff you're consuming. Because you could be watching 10 TV shows, as you said, and they're all great. Hmm. Like, I'm sure they're all way better production value than shows even 10 years ago. True. But just because it's good doesn't mean you need to consume it. It's almost like sales. It's like just because something's on sale, you don't need to buy it. But what do you think makes it too much? What's wrong with it? Just playing devil's advocate. Is it just the attention span killer? No, I just think it messes with our identity, messes with our brain's Hmm. capacity to be chill. Yeah. Because it's called um, decision fatigue when you're just constantly bombarded with choices and not just choices of what to consume, but the choices that TikTok is presenting you, you're presented a bunch of different ideologies that perhaps used to only be introduced to a new ideology once every few years, once every few months in a new news article. But now you can scroll through and learn about, I guess, ideologies and cultures, aesthetics. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's exhausting for the brain because it's like, you want to find what's best for you. You want to find the identity that's best for you, but you don't get to really give each one a good shot and perhaps you're just exposed to the highs and lows of each one this may be straying a bit too far from the question but i do think tiktok's a good example because i've always been quite fascinated with what it's done to the way that people our age and younger listen to music because what tiktok does and especially what i love or what i find interesting is when an old song goes viral Mm -hmm. because it's not the old song it'll be like 10 15 seconds and people on the radio listening to back then would have said i love this moment Mm -hmm. but I love this part of the song, right? Like yeah. most people have that even with their favorite songs. Yeah. It's like a minute or a bridge that you really like mm-hmm. the best. And TikTok just takes that and plays it over and over and disregards the rest of the song, throws it out as trash. Yeah. So I think in regards to considering art as a totality, I mean, let alone the streaming of individual songs versus whole albums. This That's is like a, an acceleration even of, even, even of that, that. I guess it crushes your attention span, but I also just think it's, we haven't really considered that another example Mm -hmm. i think in movies is like trailers now will often start with a micro trailer of the trailer which Mm -hmm. i think is is quite hilarious like the first five seconds will just be highlights from the two minute trailer that you're about to watch Mm -hmm. like what is this that's that's crazy yeah it is crazy my final thought on this question was our inability to assess the impact that the stories we're consuming has on you has on us because, yeah, you read a book and you're like, whoa, that book changed my life. Or, oh, that was a waste of time. Like, usually I have some pretty concrete observations. I'm using books as like the, the idol here yeah. of like the best way to consume stories. But then we're watching Seinfeld, as we keep using as an example. And then all of a sudden we start using sayings from the show. And it's like, if we weren't self-aware, which I feel like, a lot of people, self-awareness perhaps is something that needs to be built and cultivated in a healthy way, and not everyone has done that yet. So they're watching a show, and they start speaking like the main characters. They start even perhaps viewing other people in a way that the characters in the show view other people. <laughs> like I remember when I was watching a show once, I watched, it's probably one of the first shows I binged, and then I started speaking like the main characters, and I was like, this is so uncharacteristic of me. <laughs> But it's because I found them funny, so I thought other people would find it funny. But you need to have that self-awareness and maybe perhaps schedule in time to assess how things are impacting you. Otherwise, you might become a person that you're not actually just because of what's been 
shown to you. Yeah, I think there's <laughs> a lot of ways in which stories affect us like that. That's one way, mm-hmm. as in we start to unconsciously model the characters or various mm-hmm. elements of the story. But also, I mean, even something that scares you, yeah, um, like a horror movie or, or a scary book, Quite often it's like, oh, I, I watched that before bed, but I don't want to go straight to bed because now I'm terrified, so I'm going to watch something softer or lighter mm-hmm. to take my mind off it. And that's practical because you don't have nightmares, even though I kind of enjoy having nightmares, much to your detriment. But um, I also think it sitting with the story that we've just been told has an abundance of benefits that we don't consider. And that's the main reason I say that I think we, we do consume, on average, too many stories and mm-hmm. we've, we've already detailed the various different types of those and not just sitting with it as in how it affected you but just genuinely trying to um react to it mm-hmm. like i um realized this uh, maybe two years ago when i started watching movies more often and i was like but the thing with watching them more often is that you don't really get time to formulate thoughts about each one mm-hmm. you just move from one to the other oh yeah i kind of remember that one that i watched like three days ago even though yeah um it was that recent Mm -hmm. so i think that i mean there's a lot of different ways i like letterbox the website because it kind of lets me immerse myself a little bit more in the the wake of each film and really Mm -hmm. uh like i try and write a review for everything i watch but just even if you're not formalizing like that I, i try to be thinking about what i'm listening to or reading yeah and i think that might be a bit of a lost art because like I don't know, when movie theaters first came out, it was one movie a week and maybe or more than that. And you'd go and see more weeks than that, that is. And you'd go and see it many times. Mm -hmm. But now with streaming, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Sometimes you don't even finish watching one thing once. You watch that many times. And I think there's really benefits to dwelling on a story Mm -hmm. so that it can become more of a deep part of you rather than what you were saying with just maybe the superficial wear it for a week and then discard it type thing. Yeah, I think so. We just need to like respect our brain's capacity for yeah, integrating these stories because if we don't respect the fact that our brain is working overtime trying to make sense of all these things, it's going to get exhausted and perhaps you'll just become disillusioned with media, mm. <laughs> with everything altogether, or you'll just become numb to the things that you're consuming and then you can be consuming really beautiful art and not receiving it that's a good point yeah re-watching or re-reading mm-hmm. just going back to the same uh creative artistic well over and over again maybe that can be a question for next week actually the benefits of doing that cool and on my on my mind recently a lot with thinking about um how as a kid we used to just most kids have that one movie that they've watched <laughs> Literally a hundred times because yeah. you had it at home on a DVD. And now with streaming, I wonder if that happens so much. Yeah, and, I don't know. I mean, with books, it's like most families through history, if they were readers or literate, wouldn't have had, let's say for the last like 200 years, wouldn't have had whole bookshelves at home. Maybe mm-hmm. you would have had one or two stories that you just keep being told. Yeah. So we can talk about the benefit, benefits of that next week. And then my last point on this, do we consume too many stories? With regards to too many, I was just trying to put a definitive line on that. And I think I've touched on this in the field notes that we just put out on Friday, actually. So Mm -hmm. sign up if you want to hear some more (laughs) thoughts on that. But I think it's when your life becomes just a jumping off point for you to 
like when your life starts to re revolve around the stories, mm. your, your, your life should be the priority. That should be mm -hmm. the main story. Yeah, you shouldn't be trying to fit into a narrative, fit into an aesthetic. Well, even just like practically, when you start saying, can't wait to finish this work day or this weekend so that I can mm. really get into that book or really yeah. watch a movie. Um, that escapism, I think, can be healthy to an extent, but when it's consistent and, you know, when you genuinely prefer mm. it to your life, maybe there's... Uh, you need to look at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. There's also, like, the time taken up by it. Yeah. I mean, watching a movie is going to take usually a minimum an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. So if you do that every day, that's a, that's a lot of time. It's a lot of life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking to each other here. <laughs> Speaking of stories, I remember the story that inspired me to choose this week's Organism of the Week was the origins of coffee, because coffee is obviously a part of most people's daily routine, but it has only been a part of European Western culture since about the 17th century, and even then it wasn't around throughout all of history like most other drinks were. It was discovered by a goat herder in Ethiopia, I believe, and he saw that his goats were getting all hyper and wouldn't sleep after eating a certain <laughs> berry. And then he told the Sounds local <laughs> he told the local monastery about it and said, "What's with this? What are these like supernatural properties of this plant?" And then the monks started using it to stay up for all night prayer. <laughs> and so sounds like you. So it's like, it's a myth and there's no proof that this is actually how it was discovered, but it is a myth that there's lots of coffee shops. There's one in Halifax called The Wired Monk after this oh, wow. story. Wow. And so this week's organism is coffea, which is a genus of flowering plants. Okay. There's about 120 species, only some of which are cultivated for drinking the seeds, not the berries. The seeds are the coffee beans. The berries are called Starbucks. The berries are called the coffee cherries. And so this is the organism. It's a tree or shrub. I'll describe it. Yes. It's a single brown trunk with six, excuse me, seven spindly uh, branches, some very scratched, scribbled, I'll say uncaring green foliage around it, <laughs> and many red dots that look like either chicken pox or minis. Oh my goodness, Aaron. So... It's there's a lot of berries on the trees. It's I not see. like when you go to a raspberry plant, there's like a few berries. It's like dense. It's, it's riddled. Yeah. It's and then so the trunk and then out from it, the branches are covered in berries. And after the berries, there's the foliage and they can grow three to three and a half meters tall and live up to 100 years or have fruit for up to 100 years. But it's more likely to be 40 to 50 years per plant. And then the Arabica coffee species is the most popular. That's what the average person drinks. And then there's Robios, which is about 20% of what we drink. And then there's a few new species which are up and coming. I learned that the seeds inside the berries are the coffee beans, but the coffee cherries themselves are caffeinated and juiced. So you can have coffee juice. Isn't that just coffee? No. Okay. So they're juiced. It'd be like orange juice. Really? Yeah. What color is it? I don't know. Hmm. I'm guessing red because they're red berries. I wouldn't 
So that would still give you the same effect as coffee. It's a different effect. It's a different type of caffeination or something like that. Coffee is like this forbidden fruit to me because I've never tried it. So I'm always <laughs> trying to pepper coffee drinkers with questions about what it really does to you because yeah. TV portrays it as such a <laughs> such a um, crazy impact that it has on mm -hmm. you. And I do feel like for me, it would probably get me up the wall. I don't think it'd be good results. But you also have to avoid... Sugary pops. Sounds true. Yeah, so that's the organism of the week. Thought it'd be fun. I chose it, yeah, because of the story behind it, but also I just like coffee, Lovely. obviously. What's your favorite coffee? My favorite coffee drink is a cappuccino. I don't know what I was asking there. <laughs> I don't know the different types. I was going to say, what's your different, your favorite, like there's different uh, breeds, isn't there? There's really, as I said, only two that we drink, but there's different roasts. Oh, roasts, yeah. That's so I like a brown sugary chocolatey roast i don't like the fruity ones because they're too acidic <laughs> so if you ever give me a coffee and ship it to us don't give me anything fruity because i will probably dislike it i tried a ban banana undertone coffee the other day not a fan because banana is a berry as aaron has taught me i did know that the next question for the episode was about intertextuality its history and also how the internet has changed it the Wikipedia definition of intertextuality is the shaping of a, of a text's meaning by another text. But that same article goes on to explain how muddy the term has become mm -hmm. and that a lot of people just use it as synonymous for texts or pieces of art that are full of illusions. Mm -hmm. Wow, look at all the intertextuality. Yeah. This tapestry, this collage across uh, time, really. Mm and how we are living in reference, how yeah. each piece of art today is living in reference. The example that I used last week on the episode was about how so many musicians, especially young ones, will now describe their new album or new song as having shades of this, it's giving this, this part really reminds me of this, we were inspired by this, and how I felt like maybe 50 years ago that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. It was the case a little bit, but not the absolute norm. Yeah, so to go back through history of how this came to be. I just assumed intertextuality was a ancient concept because obviously most religious and cultural texts are riddled with it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Greek myths all refer to one another. You need to know who Athena is if you're going to read this myth and so on. And but also the Greek myths aren't often originally Greek. Right? They come from other cultures themselves. Yeah, so it's like all of these historical stories are in conversation with one another but until the 60s intertextuality wasn't even a term yeah however i figured i'd want to find kind of the turning point of when it just shifted from a earnest conversation to a more like complicated form of plagiarism <laughs> <laughs> and you in use so strong a word <laughs> i homage maybe homage or contribution and the turning point that i could figure was in 1855 there was a book written and it was called the age of fable which was written for the average person usually the uneducated person to read and then understand all of the allusions being made in public speeches and newspapers and okay, so on yeah because around like 1800 people just started referring to all these ancient myths these different right, historical events and so on that the average person probably wouldn't know because it's not a part of their local culture. It was more of a global mm. culture. Yeah, with the like, class stratification, how the upper class were taught the mm -hmm. classics, really. Yeah. Exactly. So that book was written, and I feel like we need one of those to navigate 
today. Oh, do you think? Yeah. I think we have the internet. It's true. <laughs> but that Actually, was my brief history. Um, a, a specific analog for today I thought of that I wanted to mention was this website called TV Tropes. I don't know if you've ever been on it. Perhaps. I have spent too many minutes on there. I'm using minutes lightly. It was hours. Um, <laughs> too many minutes, about 59. Because, <laughs> because for me, as a burgeoning fiction writer, I um, be, access to the internet from, say, age 11 or 12, TV Tropes was just a, an absolute goldmine because it basically is just what it says, TV Tropes, each article on it. It's like a Wikipedia, but it's much more connected. Mm. It's like a Wikipedia in which every third word is a hyperlink to another article. Mm -hmm. And TV tropes, it's not just TV, it's all sorts of art, books, uh, video games, movies, everything. And so it'll be like The Damsel in Distress. Um, that's an article. But then it'll list a bunch of things and some characteristics of it and some films or books that use it. But it'll also break down The Damsel in Distress to very, very specific categories that you can see. And I think it kind of breaks your brain. Luckily, I don't go on it anymore because... Um, <laughs> It's, it's really like a candy store, I think, for, for certain people who are into mm. that type of thing. But it's a, it's a really good example, I think, of intertextuality today and how, like your example in the 1850s of the maybe more uneducated people having access to this book and mm -hmm. suddenly um, being able to understand so much. We are like that times 10 because we can yeah. understand like everything. And mm -hmm. I was thinking with regards to the history of intertextuality, as you said, it's always been around. Like currently I'm reading Metamorphoses by Ovid and the introduction was, was quite detailed in describing how these are mostly all retellings of stories, either remixed, just like jammed together in certain ways that Ovid thought poetic or maybe more, more telling or something like that. Um, or sometimes they will have very deliberate allusions in the text to the people who previously wrote them, which I thought was funny, or little side jokes, you know, if you understand it. And that's why I like reading old things, um, old literature that has very heavy annotations, because otherwise so much will go over your head. Yeah. So that's why I think intertextuality maybe hasn't really increased so much on the side of the creator, but on our side, the side of the reader, I really think it has increased. Yeah. And the example I thought of was, well, for the Ovid, there's an example right there because now I can follow all this along, whereas maybe people, even at the time, won't understand yeah, it all. Yeah, that's true. But also Tarantino movies or yeah. um, certain directors like that for whom every single shot or scene is an homage to something. Maybe in the 60s when that was happening, a lot of it would go over the viewer's head. Yeah. But now you can um, just look it up and it mm. sends you down this whole rabbit hole of all the movies that inspired this. Yeah. Or let's say you really like a new movie that comes out and you want more like it, but there aren't many that, that are like it that have come out recently. You can just look up what inspired this. Mm. And I think that makes us more knowledgeable. I think in general, we're much more knowledgeable. I think it maybe changes the way that we watch things a little bit, where you're noticing tropes and cliches in real time and maybe not enjoying those as much as people previously did. Yeah, it's true. Like there's, there's a certain type of overexposure there maybe. Mm. I think this can also kind of, one unintentional side effect of it maybe is it can lead to this weird kind of back and forth between creator and consumer in that the creator sometimes has to deliberately try to be subversive because the consumer is so well versed in mm. different stories basically. Yeah, it's because 
what I'm thinking of is how kids just know Hamlet and they know Romeo and Juliet before they know what those are because they've watched Lion King and they've watched all of the they've watched Romeo and Juliet and the the <laughs> likes. And it's funny because as you said, it's like it makes the reader almost more smart. Yeah. Because you have this you're being cultured by watching right. a kids' movie. But yeah, it definitely makes the creation of art much more challenging. I remember it when I started IB English in grade eleven, the teacher started out by saying everyone needs to pick their story that is all stories. So for her, it was the allegory of the cave. And she said, every story is the allegory of the cave. And she said, most people have something different. It's usually an ancient, it's Beowulf, it's the Bible, it's what have you, that they think this story is all stories. Like there's no original art. It all comes back to this one. And I think that's true and has always been true. But now because there's been so much created, it's even harder to make something original. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if that was original is the thing. Like so there's, an, there's an argument that nothing ever was original. Mm-hmm. Everything is just an adaptation. Even the very first story, let's yeah. say it was like a story about someone chasing something. Mm-hmm. They just watched it in the wild and decided yeah. to write that down. Like That's what I think anyway. I think everything is an adaptation of another story mm-hmm. of um, nature. Like, it's true. I mean, nothing can really come out of mm-hmm. nothing. Not to get religious with it. <laughs> um, another video, uh, type of video that I wanted to mention was these ones on YouTube that are called, uh, musical ones that are called Every Sample Featured on X Album. And it happens a lot in, mm. in pop music and hip hop because sampling is so huge now. And though this is strays a little bit from storytelling, I think it's a relevant analog. I mean, you could, you could do the same video for like every homage in a Tarantino movie, but yeah. um, I think that's quite unique to the modern times. And I'm not sure if it's good or bad. What do you think? Like this transparency and all the influences. Because maybe all the influences were always there, but now we can really see through. I thought about my answer to that question when I was preparing for the episode, because it's a question that came up for me. Is this a good thing, all of this transparency in what we're referencing? And to me, it feels a little lazy. I don't know if that's harsh, hmm. but it feels like Oh, it's trying to be so deep by referencing a Greek god who's kind of fringe in your music. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So pretentious in some cases and yeah. maybe uh, low-hanging fruit in others. I think about in comedy, there are some sitcoms or movies where every single punchline is, you know, this? Yeah. Or like, um, look, we're talking about this TV show or mm-hmm. we're referencing this thing. And it's like, I do think that people are waking up to that a little bit. Maybe the peak was something like eight years ago, mm. things like, um, what's that movie? Ready Player One. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I didn't watch it. Or the new Space Jam, I think, looks something like it, where, look, it's uh, Scooby-Doo and Godzilla. Yeah. They're all together. I think that kind of intertextuality is, I mean, it's not really storytelling. Yeah, and it was almost like we were talking about when the internet came about and then memes started happening like 2010, 2012 era. And it was like, oh, everyone hates the word moist. Oh, yeah. Everyone, oh, our mustache is so funny. It was just like so low-hanging yeah. fruit, as you said, <laughs> that it was, so hopefully it's changing a little bit since then, but that was definitely the peak of, this isn't funny. Like, the just because it's common is, doesn't is mean it's funny. It's such an outrageous phenomena. Because yeah. you're right, almost everyone would say that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I hate the word moist. And I would think, no, you don't. Yeah. Like, where did it start? Where did it come from? Why does everybody know. say it? I probably said it many times. It was just like 
it was like a cool thing. It was mm-hmm. like I wear Nikes. I hate, I hate Moist. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I wear my Livestrong band. I hate Moist. <laughs> <laughs> That's what made you popular. Yeah. Um, but also with regards to the internet, I was thinking about it because, like, I mostly read old books. So I was thinking about intertextuality back then, like Bible era, mm-hmm. and I was reading into Homeric intertextuality, which is quite fascinating because. Obviously, Homer's stories at the time weren't texts. Mm-hmm. It was oral. It was it was liquid. It was in the ether. Was like, so what? no, it was. It wasn't material. Yeah. So um, they were saying the the scholars on on Homer were saying that there was a kind of intertextuality that happened as the story moved from mm-hmm. place to place. It's like shorthand. What? It's like shorthand for telling a story. Sometimes I don't know shorthand. It's like okay, you're telling a story. You're telling. The Odyssey, and then you say, "Oh, and you know about Telemachus," and then. Uh, oh yes, exactly. Because yeah. because it was um, it was told they could just skip mm-hmm. certain parts of it or yeah. repeat other parts of it, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's really fascinating. And it it had me thinking that for intertextuality and maybe for storytelling in general, I'm not sure. We can kind of place it into three epochs and two seismic shifts. The first going from oral to mm. material when we started recording things and. When I don't know when paintings started to stay around and not yeah. wash off the cave wall or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And from material also, the recent innovation to digital, where mm-hmm. things don't just stay around, but they stay around forever, and you don't have to go to the museum to see them. Mm-hmm. You can do it with no barrier of entry, archived permanently in your pocket mm-hmm. for everything. Yeah. And each one of those, I think, leads to increases in intertextuality because. We're always now just steeped way more in, in different references. Yeah, and I feel like we're all like reaching for the deeper and deeper cuts to try and exactly. reference in our art. Yeah, something else I think of might sound like a capitalist critique. I suppose it kind of is, is that um, so, much, so much of nature and mythology has just been mined for branding. It's true. <laughs> so it's like every Greek god now just has a company named after yeah. him. And almost every constellation or star or minor figure in uh, in mythology, and they just it keeps getting more and more niche. Mm-hmm. So you'll be like seven uh, hours deep into reading about nymphs, <laughs> forest nymphs online, and you're like, oh, this one's named after my local gym. Yeah. Or <laughs> vice versa, I should say. So it's that's what I had on intertextuality, capitalist intertextuality. Mm. No, it's true, though. I mean, we were trying to come up with the name Solacene, and it was like, you really couldn't just pick a word that exists. <laughs> like literally every word in the dictionary is a company. Yeah. We tried. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's like, okay, now you need to make a new word, which is challenging. And the final question was, what are some examples of positive stories of identity in the modern world? Yeah. And I didn't really know how to go with this question. <laughs> Did you, what were your, what was your... Well, I I just tried thinking off the top of my head for things, and Mm -hmm. I couldn't think of many, but I thought of some, I couldn't think of many that would just feel good, should I say, that Mm -hmm. I actually think are good art, which I think is quite telling, because, I mean, it is hard to find identity in the modern world, Mm -hmm. and thus, almost all art about it is about the sadness of it, or the isolation, or the loneliness, or the literal depression. But I kind of broke it down into, I suppose, three different categories of stories that I think are very prominent today that have a relationship to identity that are interesting. So the first of which was um, the story about reality. And also I I mostly went with movies because I think that's the dominant form of storytelling today. Mm. And you already mentioned Plato as the cave, but I think a lot of these reality-focused stories are um, directly indebted to that or just retellings of that story. Mm -hmm. 
which I guess for people who don't know or want a refresher, it's like there's people in a cave and there are puppets projecting a shadow play on the wall for them. Um, and so they're all, they all have their backs to the exit to the cave. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, this is their reality. This is what they just think is real. Mm -hmm. And if they actually left the cave and went out into the sunlight, it might be blinding. Yeah. But that would be real. Mm -hmm. And I think um, this has been like well documented. People talk about it, how so many blockbusters starting from, say, the 90s to now have been all about breaking through some type of wall of simulation. Yeah, waking getting, up. Waking up or getting really into reality. There's like The Matrix or Inception mm -hmm. does it with dreams. Or that one's interesting because the conclusion I've always considered is that the main character says, ultimately, it doesn't matter that much mm -hmm. as long as I have, uh, as long as I'm happy. Um, yeah. Truman Show is another one. But something that came out just last year, I think, that surprised me with not being awful was Free Guy. Free Guy. I actually yeah. like that. And I, I think Oscar I, nominated I had, Free Guy. Yeah, it is. I had goosebumps <laughs> during the, the third act when, spoiler, <laughs> he becomes a free guy. <laughs> <laughs> but that was actually, I think, quite interesting. And also, for people who've seen that movie, it plays with intertextuality in a cool way. We were watching it in the theater, actually, mm. for some reason. <laughs> and uh, in the third act, there's this triumphant moment that references and various other triumphant moments from mm -hmm. other Disney properties, Disney IPs, <laughs> yeah. and the whole theater like erupts. And I was like, this is hilarious. Yeah. Because I think the movie is kind of critiquing this to an extent. So I think all those stories, the prevalence of both of them being told and also our obvious affinity for them is indicative that we, th we know that there's wool being pulled over our eyes to an extent and that mm -hmm. most of what we interact with, this type of thing, people listening to this podcast, is not reality. This isn't real. There's, you know, right now, me and Alicia are projecting little shadows on the wall for you to mm -hmm. comfortably sit and watch instead yeah. of going braving the wilderness or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a common uh, moral in our stories about identity. Mm -hmm. The second type of story that I was thinking about was, I'll just call it relational or those pertaining to relationships. And quite a, a common theme, I think, in movies was people... Um, struggling through many relationships, but ultimately the, their, their goal, what they should be doing is defining themselves outside of their relationships. I think mm -hmm. so many people, I mean, obviously we live more urban than we ever did before. Yeah. We are defined by all the people around us more so than ever. And we're not really much of individuals in certain cases. I thought about her is a good example of this in a romantic sense, lost in translation, similar to the isolation that can come from, uh, with other people. Punch Drunk Love, I was thinking about as an interesting, doesn't have that exact moral, but it's a movie that's uncomfortable to watch in its portrayal of certain relationships uh, mm -hmm. in the modern world. Eighth Grade was one I thought about. Francis Ha is another one that has a similar story about adulthood. Yeah, what do you think about it? Only Yesterday is another, is a Ghibli animated movie that I thought is, that one is partially about finding yourself through relationships as well, though. Mm -hmm. I think watching these stories play out in films is almost a shortcut for us in a good way. Yeah. You can almost project yourself as the main character and say, oh, shoot, I'm relying too much on my friend group. I am becoming like them. I don't like that. Or you can see the person who is striking it on their own. They're saying, I'm not going to be like all the kids at school. I'm going to go and be myself. I'm going to go live in the countryside. I'm going to try these new things and find myself. And then you can, yeah, just kind of map yourself onto these different stories. And that's a good way to not have to experience the physical heartbreak and hardships of these things as if you were doing them in person. But one thing I was thinking about of like the dangers of this, of 
mapping ourselves onto stories is that perhaps you start to play them out in your own life in a bad way, if that makes sense. Mm. So I think there's, it's really a double-sided coin because I feel like the amount of drama we consume and it could be in following the Shakira and PK drama or it could be following a drama reality show or watching a dramatic movie. It's like, well, my relationships are just pretty chill. My identity is pretty chill, but Boring I want it to be even. a bit more Boring dramatic. Comparison. And then you become a drama queen or king. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can talk about that uh, next week. The, yeah. danger, the dangers of mapping ourselves onto stories. As you yeah. said. The third category of identity films, I guess, is I've just called it the spiritual crisis films. Mm. And these, this is a bit of a broader car- category, but I was thinking about The Alchemist, the book. Mm. Um, was written, I think, before internet. Yeah. And so too was Plato's The Cave story drawn mm-hmm. up way before any of this, <laughs> but it just so happens that it's only become more relevant with mass mm. media. Um, Fight Club is another one. I was thinking about my favorite episode of SpongeBob, Nature Pants. Yep. Which, for those who haven't seen it, is when SpongeBob is in the Krusty Krab one day and it's just, I mean, we've all been there. Soul crushing. We've literally all just, we've just all been there. It's soul crushing. He's like, Whipping patties, what is this? Why is my wife like this? And he looks out the window and there's the jelly fish uh, and he says, this is freedom. Mm-hmm. So he strips off and goes to live in the wild. Yeah. That's what I often want to do. That's what mm-hmm. my poem was kind of talking about. <laughs> yeah, the spiritual crisis, um, this is very deep. But uh, another question I had just to the side of it was, why are there never any smartphones in movies? Why no smartphones in mm. movies? So I think we can talk about that next week. That is a good question. And it's, it's relevant because it's like, with the spiritual crisis or with the idea of an uplifting movie about the modern identity, maybe mm-hmm. even an oxymoron, how closely do we want our stories to reflect reality or mm. how closely do we, or how much do we just want them to be escapism? Yeah. Because I feel like nine out of 10 movies, even if they're set today, they're stranded on an island. They're in the countryside. Yeah. They have no cell service. Yeah. That's a good question for next week. I think about the spiritual awakening, the spiritual exploration in films it definitely it always shows like the negative side of it I was thinking a lot about Catcher in the Rye in preparation for this question and I was thinking like what happens in that story is just kind of upsetting it's just kind of sad and you all of these coming of age spiritual awakening films because I feel like a spiritual awakening is like an adult's coming of age perhaps it's like a midlife crisis the E pray love yeah and I think it's not often a good thing to (laughs) see portrayed in movies because perhaps it's more again dramatic than it would be in real life it doesn't encourage you to actually question things and perhaps just be okay with your own like how things are Mm. it makes you constantly feel like you need to change and find what's best like find the culture find the religion find the aesthetic yeah. that so, is best so, for you to answer the unanswerable question of what am yeah. i basically yeah i can't answer that just by i don't think you can answer that by ch- trying to define yourself mm-hmm. i think so and the book that i was referencing earlier i just highly recommend people read even like just a synopsis of it because she literally has like four points that sum up a good balance of consuming media to inspire your personality and not letting it consume you and become like that person who's just like jellyfish going with the flow Mm. of what her 
biggest recommendation is is to define limits of a starting point. And she says or suggests that you should look to your literal like genetic history if you know that. If you know you're like for me, I'm French, English, Scottish. Like look there, and it's like perhaps that history will have nothing for you. And I know not everyone knows their their history, but right. she even suggests, okay, where are you right now? Look into the history of that place. And if nothing in it can be authentically you, then start branching out from there. But don't just go to the internet. Don't just go to the stories and say, who am I? Because you're going to just get like a yeah, lot of things are that you gonna, aren't. How do they know you? Yeah. That's really a fascinating piece of advice about finding out your ancestral history, I guess. Yeah, because she said that's what's going to be most authentic. Yeah, I be- mean, yeah, of course. Because she's like, well, obviously nationalism and patriotism can go way too far. You can then think that you're superior or that people are superior, but she suggests going into it with the mindset that you can have pride in your heritage without being... Yeah, I've just always been <laughs> curious about why there is seems like there's a point in everybody's life where they become interested in the family tree and the story mm-hmm. of their heritage but it's it might be just the same urge that makes us want to watch that cool movie this mm-hmm. is a story that's what it is yeah. it's, it's a story but it's the story of you to yeah. put it in a really like a i don't know bumper sticker way it's yeah. like a, this is a story that will is internalized in you in a way mm-hmm. that no matter how much we dwell on others they're not going to be part of our dna mm-hmm. so yeah. that's the fascination we want to figure out the roots of our character yeah literally yeah that's what she was saying she's like you could ask a random person at the gym oh what's your culture what's your heritage what's your vibe but it's like it's just going to be a leaf on your tree is mm. what she kept referring to us as trees she's like you need to look to your roots before you start decorating yourself with the trees and the flowers the leaves and the flowers yeah it was really interesting because she also one of her main points was to find inspiration from people who have immigrated to a new place. Because often when you immigrate or move, like we've moved provinces, which in Canada is like moving countries, you are like, okay, I want to adopt a culture more like this. However, you do need to look to your roots and kind of stay rooted or else you're gonna just be, you're gonna just fall over in this new culture. Um, Yeah, highly recommend the book. She had a lot of experiences that I found interesting and experiences that I've never had. Like she grew up Jewish in the USSR, where if you were registered as a Jewish person, you were, you didn't have as many rights as other people, but she didn't even know that she was registered as Jewish until she saw it in like second grade or something on a list, asked her family about it and they said, no, we don't talk about that. Then obviously with the fall of that institution, she began exploring her heritage and she moved around a bunch and it was just a really interesting story. So I highly recommend that book. It's very relevant to today's episode. That's a nice note to leave on. Yeah. So thank you all for listening. Hopefully you're enjoying the storytelling semester. I really like it. It probably leaves me with, um, always leaves me with a lot more thoughts than any other conversation. It's true. So thank you, Alicia, for that. And see you all next week. Bye.